Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, and welcome to Pixels, a podcast for the discerning gamer. Hello everyone and welcome back to Pixels, the show where we cover the news from the gaming world. I say the show as if, as if it's the only one. Uh, I don't even want to say it's the best, but I think it's pretty cool still. My name is Patrick Beja and uh, today I'm very glad to be welcoming back the very early riser, Olivia Grace from the other side of the world. Welcome back to the show, Olivia. <laughs> Thank you so much, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be back talking about the news with you again. It's, and, uh, and yes, it is rather early. <laughs> I, 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 you know, we were discussing when we could record, how early you could wake up, which you very kindly said you could wake up at like, I don't know, five in the morning to join me on the show. <laughs> um, and, and it was a blessing, actually, because uh, we just were recording just after the Mark Cerny interview was published on Wired about the PlayStation 5 details. So... That's really cool. Um, the first part, I'm guessing, of the PlayStation 5 details, the more mundane ones. But there's still interesting stuff there. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a, as a Sony loyalist, like, I've, I've, been a, I've been a Sony person since the PS, the, well, the PlayStation, uh, PS1, I suppose you would call it now, in the world of where we're going all the way up to 5. So this is really exciting. I, I saw... a some news last week on a, di a disk drive free Xbox One and it looked very similar to the current Xbox One and I was like, oh, we really stuck with these same gen <laughs> consoles for another year. Yeah. Uh <laughs> I want new stuff already. You're a real gamer. Yeah, there you go. That's your, exactly. Your, <laughs> uh, we're also going to be talking about uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, which was revealed a couple of days ago. Uh, also about Jason Schreier's article on Anthem and its troubled development and a bunch of other things. But uh, yeah, I guess first we have to start with that big or semi-medium-sized info dump. Um, and I, actually, I have a question for you, Olivia. On a scale of one to don't ever talk to me again, how <laughs> bored, are, how, how tired are, are you of uh, grace puns? Like if I was I to mean... title this episode, Sony graces us with information <laughs> on PlayStation 5, would you, would you like slap me next time we see each other? Or? I don't think so. I think it's one of those things where you sort of, when you have a certain, when you have a name like mine, you just kind of accept that there are going to be puns. It's okay. It's... <laughs> so I have it's to fun. say, I have to say, uh, I, I was going to uh, uh, r uh, run with that one, but then I remembered people like when they they first meet me um, after a couple of times, half of the entire population of the world that I've ever met uh, does something along, along the lines of, oh, uh, uh, beja vu or something like that. So, oh, no. Uh, I get it, too. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> um, I suppose also you probably don't mind it either, Patrick, because you're such a nice 
fine. <laughs> I don't really mind. It's like, yeah. it, it's the kind of thing where like, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, ooh, that was funny. <laughs> I, I never got that before. But you're not like, it, it's not like annoying or you don't get angry or anything. It's just get it out of your system. It's fine. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. So we'll see how I title the episode. Uh, but regardless, the, the key uh, information uh, we have gotten, are, there, are, there are some really interesting things. So this is an interview that was just published on Wired, an article slash interview uh, with Mark Cerny, who is the essentially design architect for the hardware of the PlayStation 4 and the next generation PlayStation, the next generation uh, uh, console. He didn't like actually announce that it would be PlayStation 5, but just for the sake of uh, ease, we're going to call it PS5. So there's uh, some interesting information, a ton of interesting information, but there's no super big high-level stuff. What we learn in bullet, po uh, bullet uh, point form is, um, first, there's backwards compatibility with PS4, that's expected, but also PSVR. So your existing PlayStation VR headsets are going to work with the next generation PlayStation. So that's pretty cool. It supports up to 8K. Uh, obviously, we, we're not going to have a lot of uh, 8K TVs when it comes out, mm -hmm. probably in 2020. Uh, but this is future proofing. It's, uh, it's pretty cool as well. It will still have physical media. So you'll have discs if you want to use those. Um, the internals are also something we expected. AMD, AMD uh, uh, based custom CPU and GPU, Ryzen and Navi. The, the names and, and details of the number of cores and all of that don't matter all that that much but what does matter is that it will uh, have ray tracing enabled of course ray tracing is the latest in gpu technology it was introduced by nvidia on pc with the uh, rtx level uh, graphics card so it will be in the next generation console uh, it will also have high fidelity super big uh, quality 3d audio in a way that doesn't exist right now um the word that the journalist is using to describe it is presence. Like it would, it will be. It's Peter Rubin, by the way, the journalist. Uh, it's supposedly, especially with a headset, but even if you use a traditional, um, you know, a, a home cinema system, will create actual uh, sound positioning better than it has until now. And the big, big push that they're doing, I'm saying the big push because this is what Mark, Mark Cerny really insists on, is the new SSD technology um, for the storage. So for those who don't know, until now, uh, all of the consoles have had traditional hard drives, which are relatively slow. And this is where you get slow load times and, and stuff like that. SSD is solid state, so it's essentially a uh, uh, solid state memory, like the RAM you get in your uh, uh, in your computers and tablets and everything and phones. Um, they're going to be using SSD, but a really fast version of SSD, which will reduce load time. The example they give is uh, fast traveling in Spider-Man on PS4 with this new kit goes from 15 seconds load time to essentially less than a second. So it's really significant. But what uh, Cerny says is that beyond this, it will enable for new types of design um, that because you're not constrained by the load time. So uh, 
one example he gives is in in Spider-Man, you're traveling through the city at the maximum speed that the uh, hardware enables because if you go faster the uh, console doesn't have time to read the data, you know, the art assets and everything to display uh, the other part of the city. Um, I would dispute that a little bit. I mean, you can always, it's not like you don't, you can never make jets that travel through a city really fast, just have to simplify the geometry and stuff like that. But still, um, that's what he's claiming. And uh, they're not discussing anything like services, cloud gaming, PlayStation VR 2, but they're saying things like, you know, we're pioneers in the genre and we're committed to these things. So uh, not the genre, but the, the technology and we're committed to these things. So it's a good guess that there's going to be some kind of cloud gaming and additional services and maybe PlayStation VR 2 at some point um, in the life cycle of that uh, new console. So that's the info dump. Um, anything that uh, strikes you as particularly interesting or particularly not interesting? <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, the the sort of the really good news is actually the, so two things really strike me. The VR news uh, is one one of those two things. So um, I, I actually don't own the PSVR and have been debating buying it because uh, a friend of mine owns it and it's it's really good fun. It's a really, it's it's one of the cheaper headsets if you look, if you compare it. I mean, I don't think it's a fair apples to apples comparison to compare the PSVR to the Oculus and the Vive. Um, I think that, you know, you've got your sort of top gen, like requires a powerful PC headsets, and then the PSVR is a step down from those, quite honestly. Um, but I do think that part of that is because of the console itself rather than because of the headset, which I think is really well designed. I'm a big fan of it. You know, putting a thing on your head is a very personal experience, so I don't expect everyone to agree with me. But I really like it. And I'm really firstly happy that my the existing headset will be compatible with the next gen console honestly that's probably going to make me go out and buy a psvr headset and um, knowing that i can carry that same piece of hardware forwards is really cool um, and i think it's you know it's really interesting to see what we can get to with this ray tracing system um and really with the ex enhanced graphics from the ssd and the better movement thinking about vr and the challenges that vr faces one of those is the speed at which consoles can render graphical artifacts at high fidelity so if you are i mean the spider-man example is a great one and he asserts in the article 19 times faster than the ps4 pro which is really quite a lot of times faster and i think <laughs> it's going to be really <laughs> i think it's really interesting to think about cool so that that's one kind of very forwards, very linear motion example of this. But with the VR headset, you're looking around, you're able to move your, I'm moving my head away from the microphone like an idiot as I'm saying that. <laughs> you're able to move your head quickly from side to side. You have the necessity for like wrapping of artifacts in order to make yourself feel less sick or like reduce motion sickness, make it a more in, involved experience. So I think for me, that's one of the things where I'm like, oh yeah, the increased graphical power of the new system is going to really, really alter the way that we can experience VR in, on a console, which to me is very interesting as someone who's really just getting yeah. into VR. And, and, and I think the other piece... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Patrick. No, I just want to uh, uh, underline the fact that you're right. With the PSVR you have now, I think it's it's a it's a much safer uh, purchase now because uh, it's, it's essentially just a screen, not the top quality screen, but it's already a very competent... VR experience. Honestly, mm -hmm. it's it's something that I have enjoyed. It's not, you know, you're starting to have a, a number of games on the on the system that are 
pretty good. Some of them are really good. Um, and once you get your new console, your PlayStation 5 or whatever it ends up uh, being called, you're going to benefit uh, from the, the added power for your PlayStation VR, your existing PlayStation VR as well. So it, it makes buying a PlayStation VR a much easier decision. And I think it, it might have uh, become, especially for the price, I would say the all-around choice is kind of easy to make. If you're curious about VR, that is probably a great purchase right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's a, you know, it's already a really, really awesome like starter system for VR, so to yeah. speak. So if you're, you know, if you're on the fence about, I mean, a lot of people get motion sickness from VR. I, I'm really fortunate that I'm not one of them, um, but a lot of people do. And so if you're trying to figure out, well, is VR going to be a thing that I can even experience? Is VR going to be something? I, and then, you know, subsequently, the more important questions of like, uh, is it going to be something that I enjoy? <laughs> the PSVR is a really great way to find that out already as it's the lowest price point entry to a fairly robust system, which has more than just, you know, the puzzle game type things of the, uh, the, the, the gear VR, the ones which you put the phones in. Right. Um, and with, you know, like, I think it's, you know, it's no secret that the Oculus Rift S is coming pretty soon if i remember rightly i think they said spring which yep. we're kind of technically getting there um and then i w you know i think we would all be very surprised if there wasn't a new vibe coming out um well there's uh, the, the index the 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 index by uh valve directly mm. and they're they're making right. that one and that's going to be announced on uh, may 1st i believe so it's coming ah, as well there we go mm. i just missed the news there we go often the case um, but yeah, so we have two new headsets coming, but I wouldn't, I would be very surprised if the price point drastically shifted downwards yeah. on either of those two headsets. So I think for as far as getting into VR, the PSVR is a really good one. And the other thing that um, jumps out to me from the article is actually the audio. Um, the, the article's author rightly calls out that between the PS3 and the PS4, there weren't drastic audio upgrades. Like it was a bit better and, you know, it, it always, it improves sort of, it's kind of been improving not quite even linearly with the, the graphical quality. I think there's been big jumps up in graphical quality, particularly between the PS3 and the PS4, and somewhat between the PS4 and the PS4 Pro. Um, as someone who owned all of those, I did say I was a Sony fan. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I do think there have been some improvements, but it's been nowhere near as notable in upgrades, load times, etc. All Everything else has been getting better much faster than the audio. So I'm really excited. I think that the the... The way that they refer to it as presence is very similar to the, the notion of positional audio, which um, I've never heard it called presence before, but within normal, well, normal, not VR uh, video games, uh, I think that the notion is really interesting. Um, it's great for feeling immersed. It's going to make me use my PlayStation headphones, which I hope are forwards compatible. Is that even a thing? Uh, but yeah, it's going to make me use that, keep those around, be very excited about that. And I also think it's actually really important for um, accessibility for video games. Like I know, thinking back to the World of Warcraft days, Patrick, I'm sure you and I probably both remember the the deaf game, the blind gamers, excuse me, who would be able to play the video game because they could use the positional audio integration with systems like Mumble to follow their people around and they would be able to raid and they would kill the current bosses and i think that just improving that audio environment and that simulated positional audio environment is a huge step forward for accessibility on the console as well 
Yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting take. I didn't even think of it. That's how heartless I am. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um, I, I will take a wait and see approach on the 3D audio because I've never been particularly impressed by these uh, improvements. But uh, I, I can see how it could be cool. So I'll if it is, I'll definitely be happy. Um, and yeah, I think that's about it. It's obviously not coming out this year, uh, so everyone expects it to be coming out next year, along with the new uh, Xbox, for which we will have more details at E3, or at least that is what we expect as well. But notice mm -hmm. that we barely mentioned backwards compatibility with PS4 games, because this is such, you know, another expected uh, uh, uh characteristic it is going to be essentially pc architecture as the ps4 is as the xbox one is so it will be very surprising if it's not back well actually now now they yeah. confirmed it so um it it leads to questions about where the currently announced games are going to be um i wouldn't be surprised if they come out you know, things like uh death stranding and ghost of tsushima and the last of us 2 and those I would expect would come out on PS4 and maybe simultaneously released on PS5. And even if you take your PS4 version and play it on PS5, you will be, yeah. um, you will you will see some graphical improvements. Yeah, I think the one thing that's I think that yeah, absolutely accurate. I, it's going to be really interesting to understand how they move across that, particularly if these claims are true about the speed and the audio. Like if you play a a game that's designed for this lower speed rendering in the environment where you have the highest speed rendering available, is that going to feel janky? Is it going to feel weird? It's going to be a really interesting challenge for the software developers to build for across both of those two consoles. Well, I'm I'm sure it's going to be fine. It's just that they won't be taking real advantage of what's going to be capable uh, yeah. what's going to be possible with the ps5 but um, totally the consumers yeah. like me probably won't even notice yeah i'm guessing <laughs> i think it's um, i think one really interesting thing which the author of the article does call out uh, to spend a, a, one more minute on this um is the the question of what's what does gaming look like for the ps less for the ps5 and more i think maybe for like the notion of some future ps6 where you've got, you know, Stadia is coming out later this year. And then Microsoft has been talking a lot about the, the cloud gaming elements and also, you know, making Xbox uh, the, the Xbox online system, the name of which escapes me because it's seven in the morning. Thank you. Uh, available on other platforms. And I feel like, you know, one of the things which I've been thinking recently is that Microsoft with the Xbox is moving more towards becoming a cloud software and less around. They kind of seem not abandoning their hardware game necessarily. And it's clearly not the case, given that we have Xbox One without disk drive and other Xbox announcements coming up. But I think it's an interesting that they seem to be standing across two worlds a little bit more than Sony appears to be, at least based oh, I think on that's all coming. of one article. Yeah, I yeah, think I that's think coming. coming I think the PlayStation Now is something they're going to be working on very hard. And I think we're going to see a very similar uh, offering from Sony um, and from Microsoft. I would be very surprised if they don't push PlayStation Now as one option to play uh, PlayStation 5 games day and date. Um, uh, that that would surprise me greatly. But the difference, of course, being that uh, Microsoft already has tons of servers all around the world, mm -hmm. and Sony doesn't. So that's going to yeah. be a, a, a problem. But 
I guess we'll we'll see what happens when they finally announce it. I wouldn't also I wouldn't be surprised if they have a partnership with Amazon. I think I mentioned this a while back because mm-hmm. um, Amazon is interested in gaming and they have the infrastructure the infrastructure and that's basically it. Google, Sony, uh, uh, Google, Amazon, um, Microsoft, maybe Facebook, and a few you know uh, uh, higher level internet infrastructure companies. But yeah, yeah, indeed. All right, uh, that's it for the PlayStation 5 quote-unquote <laughs> information. Um, there would be more to say, but uh, did I mention like backwards? Com- yeah, it, it is uh, expected backwards compatibility. So, And physical media um, is, is also something. I'm really something happy about physical media. I, I actually, that's something, that, uh, that's something which I'm really happy about as someone who is from a rural part of the world where internet, I mean, I live in San Francisco right now, let's be clear, the internet doesn't get too much faster than <laughs> it is here right now. Uh, but, you know, I'm from I'm from the countryside in the UK and I am really happy that the, the discs aren't going away. And of course, yes, you put the disc in and it triggers a three-week download. But <laughs> Yeah, I'm that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing, especially with games uh, gaining more fidelity and having assets that are even bigger. I mean... Which game was it? Was it uh, the Division 2 that required a download, a day one patch, which was bigger than the game or like 90 gigs? It was ridiculous. So I really think that physical media is the type of thing that now we want to have because we're, you know, gamers and we need the physical media because blah, blah, blah. But in the end, I don't think it's going to change much um, because the the downloads are going to keep increasing in size and hopefully the infrastructure will be better. I know some people are going to suffer from this, but I just think that's the way the world is going. And so physical media is something they're giving us. And I think it's still necessary. It's still needed at this stage. But during the lifetime of that, that next generation, I think it's going to be something that we want to have, but we don't use all that much. But uh, we'll yeah, see. totally. I, I certainly hope it. You know, I look with if you have internet as slow as it is at my mother's house, yeah. you're grateful for anything that stops you downloading the entire thing from zero. <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. And it's it's the same in France. It's the same in I'm sure many many parts of the world, and inc- including the US. So I'm not you know trying to pretend it's not, but I'm just oh, I'm no. just saying. Um, yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Star Wars and more specifically the Jedi Fallen Order game that was uh, introduced, uh, officially announced at the Star Wars Celebration weekend uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, That game is developed by Respawn Entertainment of, uh, well, you'll know who Respawn is. Of course, Apex Legends (laughs) is their latest uh, success, but they have also developed Titanfall and they're the developers from um, uh, um, Infinity Ward, who made Call of Duty and Modern, Modern Warfare. And they even uh, started with um, Medal of Honor back in the day with EA. Mm-hmm. So now they're back with EA, actually. And this is possibly the most we're not like EA announcement ever. Essentially, <laughs> they were saying... This is a solo game, no DLC, no microtransactions, no multiplayer, super solo. We're not EA. Of course, they're owned by EA. So this is a um, super clever communication strategy. Maybe there's respawn uh, uh capital be expand, being expanded here mm-hmm. uh, 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 in, a, in a communications discussion with EA, but they're still EA. If EA didn't want them to say this, they wouldn't. So I think it's EA reacting to the um, uh, uh, 
the way they're being perceived. And remember also that they were, uh, Respawn had been developing that game for a while before they were acquired by EA. So they, they, the game was already what it was going to be. Anyway, all that put aside, um, what we got was a, a story trailer and a lot of talking. And I really wanted to be excited about this game. Um, I, I want a uh, solo, this is exactly what I want, a solo narrative game that will put me in the shoes and in the saber of a, a Jedi. Mm -hmm. And um, they said a lot of cool things, like it's going to be melee, uh, lightsaber combat, and uh, narrative story. You, you play as a uh, Padawan after the Order 66 that has decimated the, the uh, Jedi Order. Um, and I, I'm, at first I was like, yeah, Star Wars Jedis. And as I was thinking about how I was feeling, I was like, actually, I'm not that hyped. It's like, yeah, kind, a little bit kind of whatever, which is, I don't know if it's fair or unfair, but we really didn't see anything of the game. So I'm kind of reserving judgment for when we will see a little bit more. But I was, I wanted to be excited and I was underwhelmed. Um, I don't know. How did, how did you feel? And are you a Star Wars fan? Yeah, so it's an interesting one for me. I I um, think that I am not a Star Wars fan. I, I don't think I can say that I'm a Star Wars fan around because Actually, I have sorry, so many let friends. Me, let yeah. me interrupt you. I think I, I, I'm going to get some death threats after this. I think <laughs> the original trilogy is now an average series of movies. I think they have aged quite poorly. I do mm -hmm. not like the prequel uh, uh, trilogy at all. I think I'm part of the generation that does not appreciate that because we didn't grow up with it, I suppose. Uh, I really like the new two movies, and we'll see what happens with the third one. I think they they are very cleverly written and do some uh, very interesting things with uh, dogma, the dogma of Star Wars. And, and obviously, I don't want to run into that uh, controversy, but... I guess I'm not re a real Star Wars fan either, so maybe that's why I don't like yeah. it. Yeah, well, on. and that's 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 kind of what I was. Go that's kind of you're, you know, you and I are kind of on the same page there. I think I enjoy the Star Wars films. I you know I did I I watched the first trilogy, well the mid you know the first in our lifetimes, but the middle trilogy as a, as a child, and I found them fine. Um, I was, you know, I wasn't sort of like, oh my God, this is amazing. And the, okay, the, I was like that when of, I was a kid. I loved it when I was a kid. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think it was for me, it just wasn't something, it wasn't a story that resonated with me. I didn't find any, I, you know, obviously as a young girl, I was very, I thought Leia was cool and like her action scenes, I was like, yeah, that's cool. I want to be like Leia. And then she's, you know, in the sort of slave position, I was like, oh, that's less good. And, you know, I, I felt like that Leia was really the only, the, the character that I, I was able to identify with most closely. Um, and I, I kind of, I, I don't actually think that I have seen all of the second trilogy as, as you know, the first trilogy, but the second trilogy. Right, the prequel. Um, I actually don't think I've seen all three of those because I, you know, I, it's one of those things where I watch because other people want to show me the Star Wars films, <laughs> but the, the most recent two I have really enjoyed. 
But I don't think that I, you know, when you said the dogma of Star Wars, I was like, oh, I wonder what he's talking about. So that kind of gives you an idea of like how much of a fan I am. I do not, <laughs> well, I do not dislike this, but I am not a fan. <laughs> right. So when I say the dogma, I think it's like when you refer to the fandom of Star Wars, there are things that you can touch and that you can change. And mm. obviously, as we've seen with all of the controversies, um, the 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 new movies have. Uh, poked at that uh, uh, unmovable thing that Star Wars was. And I'm not even talking about, you know, the idea that Rey, uh, the new main character, is a woman and that silly claim that she's a Mary Sue and all of that. I'm, I'm talking about things like killing some of the main characters and doing interesting things with the uh, the, the Force and the dark side and all of those things, like more of a... a um, uh, challenging what had been established as things that we thought were kind of rules of the Star Wars universe. But um, yeah. yeah, so totally, back to Fallen, totally, fallen yeah. Order. Yeah, <laughs> so with that in mind, with, with our sort of our lukewarm fandom as a podcasting <laughs> duo in mind, I, I think it's sort of, so the, let's go through the things I am excited about and the things that I am not excited about. And I, oh, I'm so sorry for the traffic noise. Um, and Gosh, that was a really loud car. Um, <laughs> but so, the things I'm, and I'm also really curious to understand from you, Patrick, um, what what would, so in a minute, I'm going to ask you what would have excited, what's missing? What would have been the piece mm. that would have made you go, oh my God, that's amazing. So for me, I am excited about a single player game. I am excited about a story, you know, a narrative game. I am excited about an action melee game, training with lightsaber, force powers, um, you know, that's whole like easy to learn, hard to master assertion with the combat. I find that interesting. Um, I'm definitely interested about the micro, no microtransaction sounds like a good thing to me. Um, the Jedi fantasy story and not a shooter. There's a lot in there that's really good. Like the Jedi fantasy I find interesting. Not a shooter is honestly like a refreshing change from recent games. We've seen a, a, of the few solo story-driven RPG like games we've seen, most of them have had a shooter element to them. And it sounds like this one is very lightsaber-focused and melee combat, as you mentioned. And that, to me, is exciting. Um, I think the things which are not exciting, the trailer, to me, just seemed kind of meh. I would have really liked to see some gameplay um, and I think it was, you know, t unless this is gameplay, in which case I take it all back. Um, seems <laughs> unlikely, though, uh, but a very sort of uh, cinematic trailer. Um, that wasn't really, that, that doesn't really do it for me. I think that it was also, it's rendered in the, in the Unreal Engine um, rather than in Frostbite. So I'm curious whether that, I, I haven't actually seen whether that means that the actual game is in Unreal as opposed to Frostbite. Yeah, um, yeah. So the we'll the see. trailer was uh, with the in-game engine, so the okay. So it is in Unreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Well, that's that's probably good news based on things we've seen recently. <laughs> More of that later. Um, but yeah, so I think that the the engine looks great. The graphical quality looks amazing. I am looking at this in the world which we live in in 2019 and wondering if I can play as a lady. Mm. And I am getting the impression from this small amount of reading that I have done that that is not the case. And to me, yeah. in, in this year when a Jedi can be a lady and a man, 
and I'm probably going to get myself some death threats for saying this as well. Um, <laughs> I want to be a lady. I want to play as a lady. Rey is a lady. There's nothing that says ladies can't be Jedi's. Leia was a lady. And I'm just like, okay, cool. It, you know, let me feel represented in this game. Let me feel like I really am that character. And yeah, the death threats will typically read something along the lines of expletive deleted. I can feel represented at, when I'm a dude playing a lady. Let me just tell you that the opposite is not necessarily true. And representation is important. Um, so from my side, I'm like, eh, about that. Um, and I think that particularly when it's a very narrative game, there's elements there which make people feel better about playing someone who doesn't represent themselves because you're playing a story. That's not the case for me. I really, really like playing ladies. I really like, there's, there's this notion of the people who are a puppet master in video games where they're sort of controlling a thing on strings and the people who really insert themselves into video games and that character is them. Um, and I'm one of the latter parts. This this character is an extension and a manifestation of me. So it's really important for me to feel like I am really within the game. And it's hard to do that when the character or the protagonist is a dude. Um, I think the yeah. Jedi fantasy story quote is the one other thing that I'll call out. I think that the when I hear a Jedi fantasy... I'm sort of, I'm making a lot of probably very unfair assertions about the ultra nerdy fedora wielding world that, that will <laughs> manifest in, which are probably quite frankly, very unfair. But that's another piece that kind of turns me off from being really excited about it. But I think that there's a fair, I think that my response is also kind of an, oh, okay, like an, I'll check it out. I'll mm. buy it on sale. Yeah. <laughs> kind of I, where I'm at. So... Yeah, I think everything you said in the beginning uh, about what is exciting about the game, I also agree. I think there are some things that I am open to. You know, the the idea of a melee combat. I'm a narrative game guy, so I'm I'm excited about living through a story uh, as a playable character um, in the Star Wars universe, and I think that is uh, uh, that that can be really cool. The melee combat. I hope they get it right. Uh, there's a little. Thing in the back of my head that thinks they didn't show it to us now because they they it's not there yet and that worries me but of course the much more likely explanation is that they're keeping it for e3 which completely makes sense and i'm completely ready to uh, uh see it as something successful um the fact that you can't play as a uh, a female character you know it's interesting because i think it it kind of in, it's part of a feeling that is not uh, uh, something that will make me not want to play the game. It's just a, a latent feeling of they're playing this one very safe. Um, they're doing everything in the uh, appeal to most people, uh, you know, to the to to the widest common denominator, which is, of course, you know, white men uh, between 25 and 35 probably playing games, which is fine. I, I'm, I don't think... Uh, I'll, I'll fight you a little bit on that. I don't think every game should have a male and female uh, option. Uh, obviously, it would be ideal if we had as many games where you can play a female character as you can... Uh, as games as, where you can play a male character. And if you had both options, that would be great as well. But I think it's it's a little bit... Uh, it takes it a little bit too far uh, to... And that's not exactly what you're doing. You're not saying every game should have the option, I don't think, um, to play a female character. I understand that you would be more into it if, if this one had. Um, and I, I... But I do think that it is... It feels like 
this is it takes very little risk with that story which it is probably fine. Um, they need to sell a lot of those. You know, it's a Star Wars game. It's going to go <laughs> with, uh, uh, come out at the same time, more or less, as the ninth movie uh, or the ninth and the, the third in the trilogy. Um, it, they want to sell a ton of games. It's fine. It's just that aspect of it, for maybe different reasons or parallel reasons to yours, is also making me a little bit lukewarm. If there, there's not something that's like interesting, you know, that clicks and you're that you can grab onto and like, oh, that is something that I've not necessarily that is new or that I've never seen before. That's something that I'm into or that I'm intrigued by. Um, yeah. yeah, I definitely think I can definitely see that. I think it's a lot of I think that your sort of summary of like it's playing it very safe. It's appealing to the maximum viable audience. I think that that's a really that, that sort of captures it pretty well for me as well. Mm. Um, and I do, you know, to to your earlier point, I don't I'm not of the opinion that every single game must have a female protagonist option available. I definitely think that games are better if they do. And that's an that's an opinion. Um, but I, I definitely, you know, as a as a female gamer, I prefer yeah. to play a lady, and I think that that can be an uncontroversial statement without it being sort of reduced to oh, every game must have a female protagonist. And I think yeah. that you know, in a world in the Star Wars world, we've seen that women can shift boxes of things, even if it's just boxes of movie tickets. Um, but we, you know, and I think it wouldn't have been a terrible thing to include this and we've seen plenty of games that have successfully done either option um in recent sort of you know in recent years we've seen an improvement in that regard but i do think that your point of like not everyone must have not every game must have it is a valid one i do think that if it had a female protagonist it would probably be even safer in so much <laughs> as you know I, I would i would hazard a guess that there are a bunch of female star wars fans out there too who would love to play as a female jedi in a really awesome story-driven nar narrative game um, and I think that it's I think, a slight shame that they're dropping those ones on the floor. I agree. And I think it's, you know, uh, uh, disappointing to me that you're going to enjoy, or potentially enjoy the game less uh, because you can't play it the way you would like to. Um, I think at this point it becomes for Respawn and EA a simple uh, uh, calculus of potential profit. Like how much would it oh, cost yeah. to do the entire narrative with like, they have to provide both options, male and female, for all the dialogue. I'm guessing it's going to be translated, so it has to be translated. It doubles the cost of all of that uh, compared to how much money it's going to bring in. I think it's a very cynical um, uh, yeah, I think, calculation I think on their part. I do think that the assertion of it doubles is makes some base assumptions that a female character can't experience the same dialogue as a male character. Um, or a female character, like if there's... Well, that's why I'm talking about translation. And... Why I'm talking mm -hmm. about translation, because if you translate in English, you would only do yes. part of the uh, dialogue. But in French, you have to use the female pronouns. Like, there's no sentence that won't be affected by this, you know? And no, many to languages, no, totally. So. Yeah, indeed. And that's certainly the case for you know, at least the European languages that I speak. And I do think it's... I, I, think that there's, I think that doubling is a reductive statement. I guess that's my main point. I think Fair that enough, yeah. it's, you know, it, it doesn't double it. And I think that that's something which people, people will say, not yourself, Patrick, present company accepted. <laughs> people will say in order to make straw man arguments about how it isn't possible to put female protagonists into games. 
Um, but I know, you know, you and I know each other well enough to I know that that is not what you're saying here. Um, but no, yeah, I think I, the what I I'm saying overall, is on on the acting part, like the the voice capture would probably uh, close to double. You don't think that would be the case? Um, I think that there are. I think that my opinion is that you know, as someone who always seeks out the female character, that if they have there are voices that can work for both genders. Mm. Um, I think that there are, you know, particularly where in this case where we have a, you know, looks to me looks like a guess, like maybe teenage man in yeah, this he's game. Re- well, he's a Padawan, so yeah, he's, he's relatively yeah, young. He's yeah, he's young, right? So he's not, he's not like a sort of, he's not a mm. husky 50-year-old guy. Um, I think that there's, there's voices that can work for both. I think that there's dialogue that yeah, can work for both. Enough, yeah. Um, I know. I, I think it's more of a sort of objection to the notion that it doubles it more than anything okay. else. That said, I do think that you are correct in so much as they are, you know, maximizing the dollars in to dollars out. And an easy way to do that is to offer one main character option, mm. one gender option, and make sure that they make as much money as possible. I'm sure that they paid a not inconsequential amount to be able to release a Star Wars game in the first <laughs> place. And so there's definitely an element there of trying to like draw in as many dollars as possible. And, you know, as is ever the case, I wish them all the best. It's probably not a game that I will buy simply because I'm very disinterested in not being able to feel represented in a in a narrative driven game yeah. if it's on sale i'll pick it up for 20 bucks <laughs> fair enough and you know who knows maybe yeah. uh, it will it will be presented at e3 with gameplay that will blow us away and i will be excited yeah. about it at that point so we'll see <laughs> who knows <laughs> who knows uh and just for the record i would also uh uh like it for them i'm saying not every game has to but i think it would be cool if they had a female option you know why not yeah if they had a female option i'd buy it at full price without even thinking about <laughs> so if, if anyone from ea is listening to this podcast <laughs> there you, you would go secure there's a, a at least single, one more sale a single data point for you EA. <laughs> uh, i'm pretty sure it would secure sales for uh for more than just olivia grace um <laughs> all right Let's talk about Jason Trier's... Oh, there there were other games presented, like a new LEGO Star Wars is uh, coming. There's a Vader in Immortal, which is a VR game. Uh, looks pretty cool if you like VR. And uh, I think that's about it, the two games that I want to mention mm-hmm. quickly. Um, the other thing I did want to talk about is Jason Trier's article on Anthem, which is a gigantic expose on the development of that game. Um, of course... Uh, every commentator and every uh, podcaster has been wondering what the hell happened with Anthem um, when it released a few weeks ago. And I guess we have the answer because I understand some people really like the game and that's fine. I'm happy for them, as I say every time I talk about Anthem. But I do think that it is a game that has significant issues uh, in its design and it in its uh, polish. Uh, and it goes beyond the polish. It's really like the core design of the game is flawed to a level that is puzzling as to why it, it came out in that state. And so Jason Triers, of course, um, uh, he is a journalist that has been doing these kinds of exposés. His book, Blood, Sweat and Pixels, which I finally uh, finished listening to uh, as an audiobook. It's an amazing uh, historical record of how games are made. I highly encourage you to go check it out if you haven't. Um, But so this this could be another chapter in his book. And it details 
what happened during the seven long years of development of that game, according to many sources that he's talked to. Um, so there might be a little bit of uh, selection bias there. I think he's a, a fairly um, dedicated journalist, and I think it at least reflects uh, a, a good part of what happened on that team. And what comes out of it is, I think, so again, it's super long, so we're not going to talk about everything. Uh, we can't. But the two things that jump out of me at me are... Um, Frostbite, the engine that they elected to use for Dragon Age uh, back in the day and that they are still using on Anthem, was not ready for that kind of use. Of course, Frostbite is being used across all of EA um, and it was developed for first-person shooters. It was developed by DICE for Battlefield games and it wasn't designed for other types of games. So it was a constant headache and nightmare for the teams at BioWare um, to adapt the engine and its evolving versions to the game they wanted to make. And that came together, apparently it's now working, but it came to together late in the develop development process. But even beyond that, um, the thing that struck me is the uh, lack of vision that a lot of developers have been describing on that game and at that studio. Beyond the uh, infighting between the two studios, the one in Edmonton uh, and the one in Austin, where Edmonton sees itself as the original, the true uh, Bioware. Um, and, and so beyond that, the, the leads on that team did not know what game they wanted to do and seemed incapable of making decisions um, on what they wanted the game to be. Uh, there are tales in this uh, article, like frightening tales for anyone who's ever been in a meeting, meaning I guess most of us, um, of discussing an issue in a meeting, finishing the meeting, and not having solved that issue, like not having taken a decision one way or the other. So you get out of the thing and you're like, so what do you do? What do we do? We don't know. Um, and my impression playing the game um, has been that it only found out what it wanted to be about like a year and a half ago. Like it needed a year or two, a year more to, to, to develop what it is trying to do. And that goes way farther than lack of polish. It is lack of... Um, uh, like it, it, it's it feels like a game that has been out of pre prod pre production for a year and a half, and that is something that is corroborated by the article. It seems like that is actually what happened. The game has changed drastically again and again and again uh, until roughly a year and a half ago um, at E three. So. It's kind of a depressing article almost, uh, especially for Bioware. And th there's the issue of crunch as well. I don't know. What, what, did, what did you uh, uh, take out of it? Yeah, I, I think what I took out of it was a really, I, I think that a really sort of strongly reflective story of the state of the gaming industry and the folks who work within it. Um, and this isn't to say that, you know, what I'm not saying with that statement is that, ha, every game developer is a muppet, is an idiot, is is wrong or terrible. Like, there are so many incredibly talented people who work in the gaming industry. And I think that the industry is in this bizarre period of 
um, being handcuffed by the community and being so afraid. And that leads to these sorts of things where people, this notion of the single vision, and I think that that's probably the biggest takeaway for me is this notion of the single vision was the, the, the one of the many big pieces. I think your summary of the big pieces of the article is highly accurate. And um, the big pieces that stood out to me were the lack of a single vision. And, you know, having worked in gaming for some time and then in software tech for some time as at this point as well, that's one of the most damning things because all of the decisions that you make going along, and this is what we, we hear in Jason's article, all of those ladder up to that single vision. And if you have that clear single vision with absolute clarity and focus, it makes it so easy to make smaller decisions like, oh yeah, how should we do this piece of combat? How should we like manifest this story? How should we, how should we, how should we? And there's so many smaller decisions, which if you have that single clear focus of this is what this thing is, it's so much easier to make them. But it, without that rudder, without that leadership, it's so hard. And I think that this this willing the, the thing that stood out to me in the article more than anything else was this notion of the quote unquote Bioware magic, where mm. if you just work hard enough, if you just put in the hours, and I think to quote Jason's article, it's a belief that no matter how rough a game's production may be, might be, things will always come together in the final months. The game will always coalesce. It happened on Mass Effect, Dragon Age, and Inquisition. Um, and it's, you know, this notion that if you just put in the time and you just work real, real hard, it's going to be okay because of some, like, hypothetical genie that's going to come in and <laughs> right all of your wrongs. And I think that, you know, we, we're seeing this with other, with other massive studios as well, where as Jason puts it in his extreme, the only, my only objection to Jason's article, which is otherwise excellent, is his writing is excessively dramatic sometimes. And this <laughs> sentence is certainly an example. He says in an isolated paragraph, one thing's for certain. On Anthem, Bioware's magic ran out. And I'm like, all right, calm down. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's accurate. And I think that we're seeing that magic run out in other places. And it's, you know, it, the these poor developers are working insane hours, they're on, in a rudderless situation without strong leadership. And there's this notion that if you're a Bioware, if you're a Blizzard, if you're a this studio, if you're a that studio, just put in the crunch and it'll be great. But the, and the industry, like the fan base and the community holds these people to such high standards. And this, to be clear, this isn't to say that I think that Anthem is actually an awesome game and everyone's wrong and the people's standards are too high. Having now actually picked it up and played it a little bit following uh, Jenny Schurler's article, um, I, actually, I actually now have played it, although for all of a few hours. Um, but I do think that there are like core issues with the game, although elements of it are really fun. But I think the thing that stands out to me is just like, this is the state of the industry right now. It's people are trying to make the next big thing. They're not really sure what that is. So they keep changing and putting things in flux and thrashing developers and uh, sorry, thrashing developers for people. It, it, it's kind of this notion of make this, no, make this. Okay. Left. Okay. Actually down a bit. Okay. Sorry. I changed my mind. Now it's right. Mm. And this notion it's of like constant change. It's interesting. I think I'm detecting um, a, a view of uh, this the industry through the eyes of a community-oriented person, which I know you are. So maybe that's my uh, <laughs> interpretation. Uh, but I think you're you're completely right. I do think that this example anthem is kind of an extreme. Um, yeah. And that the lack of vision is something that I 
don't think we see in many other studios. There are other issues that come up in game development that make uh, uh, things not work out. Uh, the idea of the Bioware magic is actually, and he also says it in the article, is something that we see at multiple studios that at some yeah. point things will coalesce often dangerously close to the release date and the, mm -hmm. the things will click but in the case of anthem they were i think using that as an excuse to kind of obscure and stay blind to the fact that the problems were much deeper than that um and and the I think at Blizzard for the, the the when the games work out great, which I think is most of the time for Blizzard, um, they reach that point where the game is like things have clicked in the last minute and the game is is good and fun finally, and then they polish for another year, which is very something very few studios can afford uh, to do, and and that is where the polish comes from. The the game is polished. After it's finished, which is something which is very difficult to do when you have to release it and make money. Um, now, whether or not this applies to recent games put out by, by Blizzard, mm -hmm. we could argue about for years, and we have before. Um, but in the case of Anthem specifically, it's not just the Bi Bioware magic had run out. It's that the state of development and the lack of vision and the meandering and like they added back flying a year and a half before the game came out. That's when things yeah. like this is ridiculous. Flying is the core element of the game. If it was added, if they decided, okay, it's going in, it had been in and out. But if they had finally decided it's going in a year and a half before the game came out, what were you doing for all those years before, you know? It's like, because flying is not just you have to get the flying right. You have to design the, the world around whether or not you have flying. It is a, a, a core of the product. And you brought up um, uh, Jennifer Sherl's article where she says why the combat in Anthem feels so damn good. And, it, and she breaks down why this is a great part of the game and she enjoys the game very much apparently you you do as well um and i can completely respect that and it's great that some people are enjoying it thank thank god for the, <laughs> for the developers you know um but it's it's mind-boggling that this only came together so late in the process and it's not that the bioware magic you know didn't happen at the end it's that they started making the game so late in the process, there's no way they could have made something yeah. that works, right? Yeah, I think that my sort of my call out on the Bioware magic, which I, I didn't realize explaining where I was coming from, is is that actually this this is a sort of notion of um the magic of game development will just happen as long as you put the hours in. It it's a very damaging idea. Because actually that's not necessarily true as we are seeing with Anthem mm. like so very, very starkly. Like you can't just sort of have this, everything's going to be okay, we are Bioware attitude. <laughs> because it leads to all of these terrible things. It leads to all of these impossible situations. It leads to like things like you said, putting flying in, not, I mean, at the last, to say something 18 months prior to launch is the last minute. It seems like a crazy thing to say it's the last minute, like just, it, it's, that's crazy. The amount of, uh, think about the difference in world design between a world that you can fly over and a world that you cannot. 
like you, there's the amount of work that that entails, not least to all of your excellent points about the flying experience as the player themselves. Mm. Like the, just the world work that needs to happen there in order to make a world fly overable yeah. is insane. No, and everything it, like know, mission design, yeah. combat, like everything depends on, on yeah. that core mechanic. So. Yeah, how can you move through the world is a pretty like baseline thing of the game. <laughs> and I think it's sort of, I think that what, what I mean with the, 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 what I'm trying to sort of get at with the Bioware magic is that there's this, there's this thing that certain studios just have the golden touch. They have the Midas touch. And as long as you're at those studios, you, everything you touch will be amazing. Everything you touch will be perfect and great. And that leads to this sort of like this trickle effect of problems in the industry of that means that studios can be less kind to their staff, as we're seeing in this article. That leads to people who will be paid less to work at a Bioware because, you know, it's passion pay and they will get to work on great games. And that leads to people who are willing to, like, tolerate a far worse work-life balance, which is one of the hugest problems which we see, you know, in the industry at large and also writ large in this article. Um, that you know the crunch is insane people are going off on I think he referred to it as something like stress leave or stress burnout and this is a really real problem that talented humans are being put through this crazy amount of thrash seeking after this this elusive notion of here's the magic is coming soon the magic is coming soon and you know the people and I I think that that's something which I I, as someone who has a, a huge amount of people who are still working actively at development at places like Blizzard it's something which I find really bothersome because it, it's it's really tough on those people, and it's so it's such an awful aspect of the gaming industry that people that there's this decision making on executive levels because they're trying they're worried about what people will think about thing A or thing B, and so they're willing to put these passionate, talented individuals through so much thrash in pursuit of this notion of this magic or this sort of special source that these studios have that others don't. And actually we're seeing the successful games come from like of the games released in the past two years. Um, There's definitely been ones that have been from huge studios. And I think I'm excited about more of the ones that aren't from the traditional big, big bet triple A's. And I think it's a really interesting time for the industry. And I think that this article and the others that have followed it is a, is sort of a, a, a really a deep look into what's happening at not just Bioware. Um, and I know firsthand that it's happening in other places, but I'm also sure that everywhere I don't know about is having this sort of fear and this sort of thrash as well. And it's sort of, it, it's a really, it's a, it's a difficult look at what game development looks like. And maybe game development always looked like this and I just don't know. But to me, it's, <laughs> it's really tough. Yeah, I think, uh, so first of all, he mentions uh, towards the end of the article, or maybe it was in a follow-up, that uh, he got emails from people in other studios that are saying, just replace the word Bioware with the name of my studio, and that's exactly how it works here. Um, yeah. I, I still think Anthem is an extreme case, and that lack of vision is u- not unique, but it seems to me like it's very peculiar to that particular, to that story. Um but oh god i l- lost my point i i had a really great point but i lost it no never mind um but yeah it is yeah no about crunch i think it, it has always existed to an extent but now we're contending with enormous projects you know every generation is a leap that requires more work more art assets more realism more ca- motion capture more everything um and we also have the issue of the uh 
the fact that when the game is released, well, it's not really the end because you have to do patches, added content, etc., etc. So I, I think crunch is probably never going to go completely away. But I, I, I also think that it's reaching proportions that are untenable. And, and the worst thing is, everyone agrees. The people at mm-hmm. BioWare also agree. The leadership at BioWare also agrees this is untenable. And I think as an industry, we're going to have to learn to uh, manage our schedules. And I think, I mean, I don't know, you seem to imply that it, it worked. Uh, uh, the crunch was really difficult at Blizzard as well. I wasn't there uh, in the US when I worked at Blizzard. I My understanding is that at least some of the teams are trying to reduce crunch as much as possible because they understand that it's not good for the long time um, health of the team and the games. Um, so I don't know. You don't have to elaborate on that, but um, it's. Uh, <laughs> well, I think suffi- suffice it to say that trying isn't the same as doing. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Uh, I also hope that it wasn't as bad as what uh, uh, as, that it's not as bad in other studios as it is uh, from what he's describing for Anthem, because that was really harsh. I don't have any illusions, though. Um, if yeah. you want to, oh, go ahead. I'll finish after. Oh no, sorry. No, I think that was. Uh, I think it's. I think to me, it's sort of that there's a lot that needs to change in the gaming industry in order. Of, and I think from this, this isn't me sort of, I've, I've tried to talk about this a couple of times on Twitter, which is a very imperfect place to talk about this. But I think that a lot needs to change in the gaming industry in a sort of seismic shift kind of way. And the reason I say that is actually for the gaming industry to not eat itself to like continue forward and continue making amazing games and continue changing the world and continue like being the zenith of like creative entertainment that it is and to not descend into the depths of like you know just microtransactions and mobile games and like quick short things because it's that these big games are so cool when they get when they're right but i think that you know we gaming is a business and it it has to be profitable. And I think that if there was, you know, a lot needs to change in terms of willingness to accept crunch and profit margins of games and how do we, and I don't know the answer. I don't know how we get to a point where Bioware feels as comfortable as, uh, like, as Blizzard does in sort of saying, cool, now this game's done. We're going to leave it the heck alone while we polish it for a year. And uh, to be clear, I don't think that's how Blizzard's developing games these days anymore either. Um, but I, you know, in order to get to that place, what needs to change in order for them to have enough profit margin, in order for them to have enough money to continue paying developers, in order for developers not to be willing to work themselves to the bone because they're so afraid of losing the job that they do have because the next round of layoffs might just come and get them. Like a lot needs to change in the industry in order to future proof it, in order to mm. keep having these massive these massive releases that we're all super psyched about. Not to say that Anthem was necessarily one of them, but <laughs> there's a like Cyberpunk. I think is a really the one that people, I, that friends of mine at least, are the ones that's the one that they're most excited about. In order for those amazing releases and amazing games to keep happening. I think my opinion is that things have got to change and I don't know what those are, but this is a really summary, a really great summary of the things that yeah. are wrong. Yeah, definitely. And and the irony is I don't, I'm not even sure it's just about money. Of course, money is a big part of it. Um, but the, we all know the, the, the big publishers and, and developers are making a lot of money. Like we keep talking about, of course, you know, it's EA and Blizzard and uh, Ubisoft and probably Take-Two and a couple of others. 
they're making a lot of money. So they would still be making a lot of money if they allowed for more time for development, maybe even more, you know, the games would be less controversials and they would be higher quality and they would sell better. Possibly that's arguable. Um, but I think it's a lot of management and we just don't know how to make these projects work without the, the, these issues. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know Ubisoft is trying to address uh, crunch really hard and everything I'm hearing from there is that they are they have a better handle on it than uh, most other studios. And I don't think Ubisoft games are necessarily worse than other studios games, right? So <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. I mean, anyway, we could talk about this forever. Um, yes. I, <laughs> I do want to point out again the article by uh, Jennifer Sherl you referred to earlier, uh, why the combat in Anthem feels so damn good. If you want to read about the good things uh, on in Anthem and the surprisingly technical uh, things that were involved in making that uh, flight and flight combat mechanics work, it's a great read. It's a Polygon article, and uh, I highly recommend you go check it out. Um, Olivia uh, recommended it to me uh, in preparing the, preparing this episode, and it is really interesting. And she's a developer too, so uh, she goes into the details of how it they had to think about all of that and uh, the mastery that went into it. So this is a really good um, uh, read if you're interested. Yeah, definitely. It, it was the article that made me buy the game. <laughs> um, so put it that having heard all the negative and having sort of afforded myself quietly not pre-ordering and not going out and buying this game on day one as someone who's a later adopter for exactly this reason um, I was sort of like oh, I'm quite smug about not having shelled out $60 on Amazon, on Amazon <laughs> Anthem I definitely shelled out $60 on Amazon um, but I think that uh, Jennifer's article um, talking about the sort of the way that that visceral feeling of satisfying combat is constructed and she's, you know, she's worked with multiple games as based in space with NASA. She's a lead game designer at ArenaNet right now, and I'm really excited for what's coming next for her. Um, but yeah, I think the, the the article she wrote is really fascinating and a, a really great read and might just make someone who isn't having fun in the game understand how they can have a little bit more fun. Uh, but yeah, definitely echo the sentiment to check it out. All right, uh, quick bits of news. Uh, there's a, a game developed by Twitch, or at least by Twitch and uh, Harm Harmonix. It's essentially a game and a live and a streaming service at the same time. It's Twitch Sings, a karaoke game. I might uh, check that out. <laughs> the next Assassin's Creed game is probably going to be a, a Nordic Vikings game. Uh, the Elder Scrolls Blade mobile game is uh, not regarded very kindly by the people who have got uh, gotten into the uh, beta test state. It's apparently for all the reasons we fear, meaning uh, very reductive as a mobile game and riddled with microtransactions. So that sucks, but we'll see once it actually comes out. QuakeCon 2019 will mark the year of Doom. Um, I don't know how you make a year of Doom with just one doom game um <laughs> but you know it's we only have one so we'll see what happens maybe remasters and stuff like that um what else and and lastly and you can talk about any of these i'm running through them but uh there was a debate about the difficulty in sekiro um of course from software game uh 
reputation for being very difficult. I think by that mm -hmm. definition, Sekiro fits the bill. And some people, there was a debate that I don't even know where it came from. Some people were saying there should be an easy mode in Sekiro because I want to be able to enjoy it. And uh, it's also better for accessibility. And some people were saying, um, usually of the less uh, uh, savory parts of the internet, uh, some people were saying, actually, Sekiro is intended to be difficult. Uh, shut up, noob, and get better. And my wow. opinion on this might surprise you. Um, but yeah, from any of those topics, anything you want to say... <laughs> You, I know. I want to know what your opinion on. If you say something <laughs> might surprise me, I, I'm here to be surprised. Surprise <laughs> me. <laughs> so I think actually it's one of the very rare few times, maybe the uh, only time I'm going to side if there is a side to take with the mm -hmm. angry gamers uh, a part of the internet. I think <laughs> there is a place for games that are intended to be difficult and there's no easy mode. I, I love it when there's an easy mode. I, I think it made um, um, a game I love, Celeste, very accessible to a lot of people. Um, and I, I played it without easy mode. And of course, you know, there's this meme that's been running of the guy who responded, someone cheated, quote unquote, at Sekiro by uh, doing a hack that reduced the speed. And they responded in a tweet that was ridiculous. Like you were mentioning the fedora uh, uh, adorned people. Oh. <laughs> like that was like you, he, the, 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 the meme goes like you gain nothing. You, you, you uh, didn't grow. You gain nothing from the game. You were uh, left worthless or something like that, like a very flowery <laughs> type of tweet. It was ridiculous, yeah. but I, I don't want... Um, I, I think accessibility is great, and it is important. But I also think when you put an option in a game, some people will... You know, you're drawn to it, whether or not you want to. And there is a purity in authorship if you say this is my artistic intent this is what i want to make and this is how the game is intended to be and if you you don't want to play it that's fine you don't have to and i will also add to this i think it's very important that a lot of game have are accessible and are um, uh, uh, available for everyone who wants to uh, play them but I don't think we should impose on every game to have, and and that's not even you know the 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 intent of the debate. I don't think. Um, but essentially, I think if Sekiro is designed to be done in that way, and to be clear, they don't want the game to kill you. They want you to learn how to overcome it, which is a noble intent, I think. It's not for me. I don't like Sekiro. I'm probably never going to play it. And I don't like From Software games. But I think what I'm saying is, it's fine if those kinds of games exist. And my penchant for accessibility and inclusiveness and all of this, I think it, it gets back to a little bit of the discussion we, we were having earlier. F for me personally, I would feel uncomfortable if it meant that uh, a game like Sekiro couldn't exist, right? If if it it was mandated that it had to have an accessibility, uh, you know, saying easy mode and accessibility is kind of a of loaded because they are sometimes similar, but of course accessibility is more important, I think, than easy mode. Um, but I think Sekiro, being hard as it is, should exist. 
right? So I don't know if that's very clear. I'm kind of rambly a little bit, but uh, that's my take on it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that I think I I think I understand where you're coming from. I think it's for me. I think it's very important. From from my perspective, at least, it's very important to separate accessibility and ease. Mm. Um, to me, at least, and this is again coming from you know a position of working in the software development industry. Accessibility is the ability for someone who is um, differently abled to still enjoy any game. So the ability, like for example, Microsoft's adaptive controllers are a great example of accessibility. Uh, the positional audio piece we were talking about earlier that allows partially sighted people to more easily engage with a game, that's an example of accessibility. Um, but easiness is, I think it's very, from my position at least, it's very important to separate those two out. An accessible game doesn't necessarily need to be easy. Um, an accessible game can be accessible, but very difficult. Those two, those two things are not the same. And um, Stephen Spohn uh, put out a really great article about this. If, you, if people are interested in further reading to understand this more, I would definitely recommend his article. Um, but the, 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 the easiness question is a, is a different one. I, I, it is my opinion that every game should do its best to be accessible. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if some like five to 10 years from now, there was some directive that every game had to be accessible to a certain groups of humans. Um, it's my personal opinion that is not shared by many studios. And I am fine with that, that not every game must be accessible to every human. That's an impossible statement. But I think like people should aim for that. People should aim to not exclude anyone who is differently abled from any game. And, and aside, thinking about it, I think, sorry, th yeah. thinking about it, during the development process, I think it was Mark Brown in the Game Maker Toolkit Toolkits uh, series who explained how very simple things can make any game more accessible. And and I like yeah. what you're saying when you're saying doing your best. It's like thinking about it a little bit ahead of time. And and you're completely right to separate the two. But um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Keep going. Yeah. Sorry. No. No. I think that the that's a great addition. I think the the easiness the easiness question is or as you put it in our notes, the difficulty question is an interesting one. I think to me, the way that I approach these difficult games, and I, I can't say I haven't bought Sekiro. Um, it's not a sort of, it's not a universe that interests me particularly. Um, I have played, I, I have played, uh, I love Bloodborne, um, which is, you know, similar but different. Um, but I think that to me, it doesn't alter my experience of a game, my enjoyment of a game, my happiness on uh, my satisfaction on beating bosses, et cetera, et cetera, to know that someone else did this but had an easier time. If anything, it makes my feeling and happiness and experience in the game greater. I think that, you know, of games which I have completed many playthroughs of, the, the one that, that uh, jumps out to me is, is actually Near Automata, um, which is a game that has a punishing hard mode. Like, my goodness me, that is, and I'm not saying, to be clear, the angry mob of pitchfork-wielding interneters, I am not saying that Nier is more difficult or less difficult than Sekiro. <laughs> I, these two things can be true at once, and the things can be true at once. Sekiro is very difficult. The hard mode in Nier is also very difficult. Um, and I think that, you know, the having completed, not completed a playthrough on the hard mode in, in Nier, it's very hard. Um, but I, I went back and I, you know, I had a go at some of the fights in hard mode. And I'm like, wow, this is hard. And I actually completed one. And I was so proud of myself. And I was so happy. And I was like, ah, oh, this is a great feeling. But that feeling is in no way diminished by knowing that my buddy at work, and he's like, not very patient. I'm also not very patient, which is why I struggle with really hard games. But he 
did the whole thing on easy mode, had a really fantastic time. The presence of that easy mode and the knowledge that some of my friends are getting through this without doing it on as hard a mode as I am, in no way affects my experience. In no way diminishes my experience. It doesn't alter my happiness in engaging with that game at all. And I think that that's why I find the uh, the perspective, and this is, uh, to be clear, Patrick, I'm not saying this is your perspective. I'm saying this is a perspective I've encountered that this sort of, it's the same thing of Mimiron's head back in the world of Warcraft days. Mimiron's <laughs> head was a mount that you got in very specific circumstances. It was very difficult to get. And so having Mimiron's head had a certain sort of gravitas to it. It had a certain, you know, you were, you were sort of one of the people who walked past in storm when you're like, oh, wow, that guy's got Mim's head. And there was a sort of a feeling that came with that, that for me, it was in no way diminished when Mimiron's head popped up in the black market auction house and other people could get it. And I think that that's sort of, that's indicative of how I see the world and how I experience it. And I want everyone to have as much joy as they possibly can. And my joy is in no way undermined or affected by other people experiencing things differently. Now, yeah. to the point of the development difficulty, though, the, the the cost of development, the difficulty of development, I think it's one of those things like your, your great point about accessibility, where if you think about it early enough, it's not, it shouldn't be like incredibly difficult to do. But if it is, then fair enough. I do think that games should be allowed to be what their creators want them to be. If what their creators want them to be is so punishingly difficult that people will eventually, you know, quit out in rage or get upset or not buy it in the first place, and they're fine with that, then cool. Um, do I think that they should all try to be accessible? Yes. Do I think that perfectly, if it, you know, if infinite resources and infinite time were real things, would I love every game to have an easy enough mode that my buddy at work could complete it? Yeah, I would. I would love him to be able to enjoy <laughs> all of the games that I can enjoy. And my experience would be in no way at all diminished by the presence of an easy mode. That's completely fair. And I think you're convincing me a little bit. You're making me budge from my uh, my argument <laughs> because, I, I, you know, you were say, saying all this and I was thinking I didn't play the uh, assist mode in Celeste, even though I thought about it a couple of times because it, it's such <laughs> a hard game. But I I finished it and the fact that the easy mode was there was really not that big a deal. Um, the other thing that I thought about was uh, the From Software games have been beaten. Um, a, a friend of mine, Excel, who is a uh, kind of the, the French specialist of those uh, uh, games, um, is has reminded me a, a while ago that people have beaten uh, From Software games, Bloodborne and Dark Souls, with guitar controllers and with uh, Dance Dance yeah. Revolution controllers. You know, it's like, it is absolutely possible. And I think the importance of having all of those games as Microsoft is doing with the uh, accessibility controller uh, compatible is, is, is big. It is important to have all of this. But it, it's, you're right. It is a separate conversation from the ease of the game. An accessible game doesn't have to be easy and an easy game doesn't even have to be accessible necessarily. Um, so you're right. I think the conversation, all of these arguments have been mashed together and I, I, I adopt your philosophy on it um, because I actually agree with it wholeheartedly. Um, I like the way you're putting it. Just like... The, the, I think the conclusion we ended up with the question of having uh, uh, both genders playable in games, I'd love to have that uh, in every game. I'd love to have all of those modes in every game. If 
at all possible, like just like the uh, accessibility thing, think about it from the beginning. If you can do it, then please do it. It's better. And it would be great if we could have it all the time everywhere. Um, I There's this little thing in the back of my mind, again, with the artistic intent. Um, and when as I'm saying it, I'm wary of it because I think it's an argument that is used by a lot of angry people and gamer to kind of justify their uh, reductive views on a lot of things. So take that argument with a grain of salt. But um, yeah, I don't think there's, I'm, I'm, I don't have a definitive answer, maybe anymore. Um, you've, you've convinced me a bit that it's not <laughs> as big a deal as I thought it was. So Thank you for sharing your your wisdom. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, thank you for be, being open and receptive to uh, adjusting. It's an unusual thing on the <laughs> on the internet. I yeah. knew that you. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm. I'm. I think that's the way uh, everything should work. You know, that, that, there's an easy solution to all of this, as I sometimes say. Just put me in charge of the world, and things will <laughs> yeah. work better. I, I for one, welcome Patrick as our ultimate leader. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, all right, I think that's about it. There are a, a few more uh, details, like um, the 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 Xbox, the drive less Xbox One S will apparently come on May eighth for a little bit over two two hundred euros. Um, there's uh, the PlayStation uh, the PlayStation Network's ID change, which is has been implemented. There are a few games that might experience issues if you uh, do that, though, so check it out before you do. And uh, there's a Kickstarter for for uh, uh, an end stream, which is a cloud gaming service for retro games, which, why not? I guess. Yeah. Um, a bunch of other things we'll probably talk about next time. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being on and uh, um, agreeing to discuss uh, these topics that are semi-controversial with me, Olivia. <laughs> Where can people go if they want more of Olivia Grace? <laughs> I think the best absolute place to find me right now on the Instagram Twitter, which is Olivia D. Grace. That's a D for Delta in the middle there. And my Instagram, which is a more picture-heavy version of my Twitter, um, less ranting, more images, which is also Olivia D. Grace. And I, yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to come and talk about video games, controversial or otherwise, with you. <laughs> we'll do it again soon. For me, it's not Patrick on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you will find this show at frenchspin.com. If you have anything you want to say uh, about all of the topics we discussed, then please feel free to go to frenchspin.com and give us your opinions respectfully please i'm sure i mean the, the audience of this show is amazing so it, it, it will be no problem at all and we will be back in a couple of weeks i think uh days gone will be out by then so i'll i'll probably play it a little bit i'm curious to check it out so we'll discuss it at that point thanks so much for listening we'll be back then bye